the good news about resilience is there's also not just one way to do it and not one way to be resilient. Probably the best way to think about it is it's like success. It's an outcome. It's not a trait. You're listening to Dr. Meg Jay. Meg is a clinical psychologist and associate professor at Virginia University and a nonfiction writer. In her latest book, Supernormal, Meg reveals the secret world of the family heroes, those who soar to unexpected heights after childhood adversity. Meg's TED Talk, Why 30s is Not the New 20s, has been viewed more than 10 million times. This was a fascinating conversation full of insights and actionable takeaways that I've already started to implement. We talked about building resilience, about grit, Meg's five years rule, and much, much more. Enjoy. I'm Guy Michelin, and this is Raising to Rise, a show about the parents, educators, and mentors of kids who made it to the top of their game. Every week, we'll identify patterns and pieces of advice that hopefully will serve you while on the journey of raising your own kids. So Meg, welcome to the show. Thank you, Guy. It's great to be here. I want to start and go straight to it. So your last book is called Supernormal. What does it mean? What does it mean? Well, it's the title of the book. And what it means is it means above the normal or average. And, and what the book is about is about people who grew up with adversity and then went on to be resilient. And one reason I wanted to go with the title of Supernormal is that so often people would come into my office and they would feel like because of the adversities in their lives, they were abnormal or they were different or they were less than. And part of my work with people is to help them focus on the resilience, on what they did to improve their situations and to focus on not on how maybe they were felt abnormal, but how they were supernormal. And, and what was the inspiration for the book? All my books are inspired by my clients and my students. I'm a clinical psychologist, so primarily in private practice, but I also work over at UVA and teach as well. And so all the inspirations for my books are always things I hear people talking about that they feel alone with or that they feel like they can only talk about behind closed doors. And when I hear enough people say that, that makes me realize that If we could all get these people talking to each other or get this conversation out into the open, people would feel less alone um, and less isolated with what's going on. And so, so the inspiration came from hearing these supernormal stories day in and day out. I have a lot of questions around that, but before we dive into the questions in the book, maybe let's just do a, an exercise of definition. So how do you define adversity and how do you define resilience? And is resilience a trait? Okay, so we could spend all day. <laughs> so generally speaking, adversity is hardship. It's not necessarily trauma, you know, with a capital T or a lowercase t. So adversity is generally a hardship, an unwelcome set of circumstances. And resilience, that's the $64,000 question of, of how you... define it. But how the American Psychological Association defines it is adapting well after hardship or after adversity. So it depends on what your definition of adapting well is. And that's really what supernormal is all about, that adapting well can take time and it can be messy and people can adapt well in some areas and not in others. 
And that I think too often when we talk about resilience, we have a really oversimplified or idealized notion of it, that people bounce back from adversity or that they're just not affected. And I think that gets in the way of people seeing themselves as resilient. So I'll, I'll give you an example. One, one reason or one aspect of working with clients that really inspired me to write the book is when I ask clients, do you ever think of yourselves as resilient? So often they'll say, if I was resilient, I wouldn't need you. Or if I was resilient, I wouldn't be here. And so, again, resilience is adapting well after adversity, but that could take some time. It could be very difficult along the way, and it may be imperfect. We may adapt well in some areas, but still be working toward that in others. And one of the things that surprised me in the book is that the statistics is amazing, or just like the numbers are way higher than what I expected in terms of people that actually experience adversity in their life. So it's, it's almost all of us. Correct. Yes. And so in Supernormal, I talk about adversity as, as a broad category and I actually talk about 10 different clients or stories, each of whom experienced one of the 10 most common adversities. And I can rattle those off for you if you want me to. So it's uh, losing a, a parent or a sibling through death or divorce, growing up with substance abuse in the home, bullying, physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, growing up with domestic violence, growing up in poverty or neglect, having a parent in jail, which is far more common now than it used to be. I think that's about all of them. So what I do is I talk about the different adversities in one book, because when you do that, when you look at the numbers, 75% of us will grow up with one of these or more. And so I wanted to have it be an umbrella book that just wrapped its arms around all of those groups rather than a, a siloed book of if you just look at, you know, adult children of alcoholics or you look at people who grew up with sexual abuse, it's a minority. It's a smaller percentage of the population. And that's part of what makes people feel abnormal and alone and different. Whereas if you say, broadly speaking, those of us who grow up with adversity, that's 75% or more. And then what happens to those kids when you follow them into adolescence? So what we know from decades of studying resilient copers, kids, adults who've dealt with hardship and come out well or better on the other end, is that we've looked for sort of the short list of qualities or experiences that lead to resilience. So the good news is actually it's a pretty long list of qualities or experiences. So within the individual, things that contribute to resilience are having at least an average IQ, having problem-solving abilities, good communication skills, being good at connecting with other people, having a growth mindset, having a kind of a sense of faith or meaning in life, having a talent or a skill that, you know, connects you with positive experiences or opportunities. So there are all sorts of different qualities within a person that allows them to be resilient. And maybe even better, there are things in our environment that can help us be resilient, whether that's a parent or a sibling who cares or having good friends or going to schools where we feel supported or having places just where we can get away from the problems that we have or institutions that help us, whether they're boys and girls clubs or churches or, you know, wherever you get your support. So 
What you see is that adolescents who are making their way through tough times, they may not be there yet, but if they're able to put together as many of these qualities or experiences, both inside and out, then that helps people be resilient down the line. And again, I think it's really important to think of resilience like success. We don't think of success of does does the person have the success trait? We think of it as an outcome that you see after quite a bit of time of hard work and experience, not all of it going easy or well. Last year, we went on a family vacation to Mexico, and the resort we stayed had a trapeze, a pretty high trapeze of about 20 meters. At one point, my daughter decided that she wanted to go on it, and after putting the harness and all ready to go, she started crying and she said she can't do it, she's too afraid. Long story short, my wife and I insisted that she finish what she started and that she will go on the trapeze. And so off she went, crying and shivering she climbed and she jumped and had a great time and i a few minutes afterwards forgot about it last week i had a conversation with my son about not giving up and then all of a sudden from nowhere my daughter came and she told him no do you remember last year when we were in mexico i was afraid to go on the trapeze but i didn't give up i climbed on i jumped and i had a great time So Noam, we never give up. And at that moment, I could not help but think about Meg's point. It's probably hundreds or maybe thousands of moments, like my daughter's moments on this trapeze, that together build resilience. So what, practically, as a parent, what can I do to help my kids build resilience? I think it's understanding that Different people will be resilient in different ways for different reasons. And so you have to look at what are the strengths my kid has, what are the strengths my community or my family has, and to facilitate those rather than worrying about covering a list of qualities that may not be as available to you or that may not be as relevant. I guess it's a good transition to the scorecard that I shared with you because a lot of the things that you just mentioned, like communication skills and growth mindset, I have it on my scorecard as part of what I see my role to help my kids develop. And so do you have any advice on how practically I can help my kids develop those traits? I mean, I understand that one thing is to observe what they have and, and try to encourage it. Right. But how do you do it in the day-to-day? So growth mindset or communication skill, is there anything that you as a parent did or do to actually help your kids develop those traits? I think that it boils down to, if we want to talk both big picture and day-to-day at the same time, I think instilling in our kids kind of a problem-solving mindset as well as an ability to ask for help. That if you look at all the people I talk about in Supernormal, now they get there in different ways. They adapt well after adversity because of different strengths that they had. They, they weren't all the same person with the same three strengths. But something that most of them shared was, one, having a real sense of any problem can be addressed or it can be solved, that I'm going to look at a problem and I'm going to try to do something about it versus 
there's nothing I can do to improve my situation. And so we kind of see that as the fight and fight or flight that they look at a situation and go, no, I'm going to solve this. Now, that may be a broken dishwasher. You know, you're talking about the day to day or it may be. Well, I'm thinking about, you know, my son who's 14, his shoelaces had turned red because of the red shoes that he bought and didn't really realize that, okay, if you buy red shoes and you have white shoelaces, the the shoelaces are going to turn pink. And so it's, you know, we had to figure out, well, how do you fix pink shoelaces, which 14-year-old boys don't want? So we looked it up on the internet. Turns out, of course, you can wash them with some OxyClean and there you go, you have white shoelaces. And that's certainly not an adversity But day to day, I think whether it's something big or something small, the attitude of when we meet an obstacle, the approach is, well, how do we solve this? Whether it's, I wish I had more allowance. Well, what could you do to earn some more money? Or I wish I had more friends. Let's figure out how do people make friends and what can we do to help you make more friends? And so to see obstacles, adversities as problems to be addressed And some of them, you know, washing shoelaces is certainly easier than making friends, but both can be addressed. And I think another part of that, because I do think in the West, in the United States, we definitely emphasize the the problem solving piece like I just did or the grit and determination piece, which is great. However, especially if your obstacle is big and it's ongoing, Grit is tiring and it's wear and tear on your body and your brain and you can't live or survive and thrive on grit alone. And so people also need support. They need to know how to ask for help. They need to know how to tell someone what's going on. And I think that's especially true for children and adolescents. And so to say if they have a problem at school, maybe they're being bullied to say, well, this is something we can address. This is something we can do something about. Let's figure out the right people to talk to and where we go from here. And so it's both the problem solving mentality with the working together with people who can help. That's a great advice. And if uh, I'm looking at the list, or if you're looking at the list of the scorecard, is there any other practical advice that that you can give from your uh, professional knowledge as to how we as parents can help the kids develop those traits? Yeah, something that comes up a lot for me. So I specialize in young adults, actually. So most of my clients are between the ages of 18 to 35, and many of whom I wrote about in Supernormal had experienced significant adversities growing up. Others haven't. But one way or another, they're all trying to figure out, how do I make my way in the world? How do I become happy and successful? And something that I have learned through working with young adults is that people who get to their teens and 20s, who have that sense of, I figure things out, I make things work, problems or situations that can be solved, they tend to do better. And so one way to think about that is that when we're parents, I know we want to be great parents and do everything for our kids and making them happy makes us happy, but it actually doesn't make your kids happy down the line to get to 20 or 25 and they don't know how to do the day-to-day. I used to be an Outward Bound instructor, so maybe it's the old Outward Bound instructor in me, but I generally parent with the five-year rule, and if there's anything I would like my child to be able to do in five years, then 
they need to be doing it with me now. What do you mean by that? Okay, so my kids are seventh and eighth grade, and by the time they leave the home, so by the time they leave high school, it's important to me that they be able to cook as well as I can, which isn't saying necessarily a lot, but it will get you by in life. So if I want them to be able to do that, the way to do that is not to teach them how to make a grilled cheese sandwich the summer before they go to college. The way to do that is in the seventh and eighth grade, every single night that I cook or their dad cooks, one of them is cooking with us and they're learning to cook because I think it'll take them five years to self-sufficiently be able to shop for themselves, feed themselves, feed their friends, you know, besides mac and cheese and the grilled cheese sandwich. So I see the years my kids are at home as an opportunity not to make them happy, but to teach them everything they need to know before they go out on their own. And I think that is something that we can do to make our kids happy in the long run and to support their resilience. Because along the way, they're having to tackle these problems of how do I make pasta primavera? Well, I look it up on the app and I go to the grocery store and I get the ingredients and I do the steps. And that might not sound like a big deal, but I think that's how we teach kids day in and day out. Everything in life is a problem to be solved, or many things in life are problems to be solved. Another example, I I have clients who will tell me that they don't know how to shop for themselves or follow a budget or run their errands because their parents did it for them when they were growing up. So in our house, if there's an errand to be run for one of my kids, they come with me so that they understand that things don't just appear in the house, that errands take time and objects cost money and you make your choices and this is how you go about life. And that may not sound like it has a lot to do with resilience, but the young adults I see who didn't grow up doing for themselves tend to not feel very resilient because it's now the day-to-day is overwhelming. One of the things that fascinates me always with psychologists is how do you, if and how do you translate your professional knowledge into the day-to-day? So you gave one example. Is there any other things that you took from the the clinic or from the learning and you applied it into the practical day-to-day in your family? If you asked my children, you would get a different answer. (laughs) I would like to say that I parent more like an outward bound instructor than I do like a psychologist. What is an outward bound? Sorry. Oh, an outward bound instructor? Oh, um, outward bound is a, a worldwide experiential education program. And so I used to take adolescents on 30 day backpacking trips and up mountains and down rivers. And so there's a lot of learn how to do for yourself, you know, teach people what they need to know to survive in case you as the instructor fall off of a mountain and they're on their own. So there's a lot of teaching people how to be safe, how to get from A to B with as much adventure and as little injury as possible. And I probably incorporate more of that into parenting than I would say this than psychology per se, partly because a supervisor told me years ago, don't treat your children like clients. And I try not to be that shrink mom. However, my son will often roll his eyes. I'll 
he has extremely limited screen time, for example, and he'll say, well, of course, my mom's read all the articles and will roll his eyes. And so I can't pretend that I don't incorporate what I've learned about what makes people feel happy and competent and weave that into the day to day. But I try not to overly shrink them, I guess. If you had to take one or two other examples or things that you think uh, had a big impact or are taking a prominent place in the way you're teaching, is there any other things that come to mind? So I, w- yeah, I would say the five-year rule is big in our house. I would say letting your kids be who they are. So if you think of your scorecard, some kids are just naturally going to be more curious than they are readers. And of course, I mean, I think it's important that everybody read, etc. But letting kids be different. And so my daughter will read all day, every day, if you give her the chance to do it. And I think that's great. And I promote that. And my son reads less. And that's fine. But kind of letting them be individuals rather than feeling like there's a formula that they both need to follow, but realizing what are we going to work with in each of them as individual people. Got it. I'm, I'm uh, going back to the book for a second. Is there anything else that we should talk about in terms of the supernormal? I will say again, with around connecting with other people or it being okay to to get help. And I don't just mean from a therapist, I mean, from a friend or a partner or a parent, whatever the case may be. You know, it's interesting. I had a big op-ed in the Wall Street Journal right after Supernormal came out. And at the bottom, they, they wanted me to say a few things that parents can do to help their kids be more resilient. And so I said things like we've talked about a take on a long form project, whether it's an instrument or a sport, something that isn't a one and done, doing chores around the house. And one of them was talk to someone who can help. And to shorten the piece, they cut that one. (laughs) Again, I think that's a very U.S. point of view of that we really emphasize the self-sufficiency, the grit, and the determination piece, which is probably half the equation, but the other half is definitely not going it alone, that there's research on people who are strivers And they're kind of relentlessly resilient, yet the problems are are long. It's not a one-week problem. It's not shoelaces or cooking dinner. It's living with an alcoholic or living in a disadvantaged community. And that over time, that sort of resilience, that kind of determined striver form of resilience has its negative health outcomes. It's stressful on the brain and the body to always be overcoming something and to never give yourself a chance to just talk to people about what's going on and to not have to go it alone. That it sounds cliche, but you know, there's just as much research out there about the power of talking and connecting with other people and getting support and how that leads to long-term resilience in terms of better health and mental health outcomes about how that helps people be resilient over the long run as how grit helps us be resilient more in the short run. So I'm terrible at asking help because I grew up in the house that you would never ask for help. How do you teach it to a kid, especially if you're someone like me, that it's very unnatural for him to ask for help? You know, I think it's 
the role modeling of, okay, so, you know, everything is a problem to be solved, whether you go online and you ask Google how to fix shoelaces, or you go down to the school and you talk to the vice principal or the counselor about peer problems that you really kind of show kids, this is how we consult with other people. This is how we use the wisdom of the crowd. This is how we use the strength of weak ties or however you want to frame it with them, that it doesn't have to be it's weakness, you need help. This is about how you pull in all the resources around to help you solve your problem. And I think that if our kids see us doing that, that that's part of the problem solving process is to talk about what's going on, seek the wisdom of others or the advice or the input or the resources of others to see it as really group problem solving. I mean, it kind of brings the two together. So it's not grid over here and asking for help over there. It's more of a a group problem solving approach. So the change needs to start from us. If I don't have it, or I tend not to ask for help first, I need to change this in me and then to role model it. I mean, I think that can only help. I think when our kids see us, how do we approach problems? I mean, that's cool if they see when my dad has a problem, he digs in and never lets go and he, you know, won't let up till he's solved it. Great. That's one way. But if you have 20 years of problems, you're going to wear yourself out doing that. And so letting them see, well, when my dad has a problem, he decides he's going to find a way out and he asks for help and he leans on other people and asks for good advice and uses the resources in the community. That's a more sustainable form of resilience than determination alone. As I mentioned, I grew up in a house where asking for help was considered to be a weakness. And so till this very day, it's very hard for me to ask for help. About two years ago, my wife fell ill. And as a result, we had to reach out to friends and family and ask for help. And I have to say that I was amazed by the love, kindness, and overall support that we got. To the point that I'm not sure we would have been able to go through those challenging two years without this support. And that's Meg's point about resilient people being able to reach out and ask for help really hit home with me. And I'm working hard to teach my kids that it's not only okay to ask for help, but it's actually an important skill. And then last question on that. I saw that, at least in the book, it says that there are also physical changes that kids that grow with adversity have. Like you talked about the fight and flight mechanism, a higher attention to certain emotions. And you talked about the wear and tear and the cost of that. Can you elaborate a little bit what happens to our body when we grow up into uh, adversity or we experience adversity? Yeah, so this really underscores what I've been talking about of why you can't live on fight or flight alone. That's a short-term strategy. And so fight or flight is the body's defense mechanism when we experience or we, we think we perceive danger or uncertainty, which is also perceived as danger. When our brain perceives that, whatever that is for us, so it could be a bear, but it could be a bully at school, or it could be a scary parent's voice when they've been drinking too much or anything, that our brain goes into fight or flight mode. And 
the brain doesn't differentiate between a bear and a scary parent's voice who's had too much to drink. Either way, it's it's alerted the same. And so when we go into fight or flight mode, our amygdalas are signal, stress hormones are released, and that allows us to go into that fight or flight mode. But this is supposed to be a short-term strategy to help us run from a bear. The problem with most of the adversities kids grow up with, the ones that I talked about, whether it's, you know, having an alcoholic in the home or a mentally ill sibling who throws plates or living in poverty or living with domestic violence or having a parent in jail, none of these are one-time stressors. They're day after day, night after night stressors, often for years. And so what you have are kids who are growing up spending many days, if not more days than not, in fight or flight. So they become overexposed to their stress hormones, which over the long run damages our brains and our bodies. So it makes us more susceptible to all the leading causes of death, to mental health problems, substance abuse problems, you name it. Because we're not designed to be living with chronic or cumulative stress like that. So that's one reason why resilient children, adolescents, adults, they don't just fight their way through it. That's part of it, but that's a short-term strategy. They also have other strategies. The flight piece, which we never talk about, is important, and that can be getting away from the problems that are in our lives or creating some distance or some space, whether that's small or large, just finding a way to get away from the stress that we may not be able to change in the moment. And that's also where the getting support and help from other people comes in, because just the way that stressful relationships trigger fight or flight, soothing, helpful, supportive, safe relationships calm our bodies down. For the last part, I have uh, four questions I ask all my uh, guests. Okay, I'm ready. So the first one is, how do you define success as a parent? <laughs> that's a good definition <laughs> Freud I mean I'm not I'm not uh, fully behind everything Freud ever said but Freud said something like work and love love and work that's all there is and and certainly with the age group I work with and I, I would say it's very similar where I am in my life that most of our day revolves around work and relationships. And if my kids, they feel competent and satisfied with their work and their relationships, then I think most of life will, will follow from that. And so I guess success for me as a parent would be raising kids who felt good about their work and their relationships. And I think the rest would come. I mean, it's, it's tricky because I think, and I may be veering slightly off off topic of your question, but I, I do think it's difficult because I don't think parents can get too hung up on seeing their children as their success because then you, you put a lot of pressure on the kids to feel like their ups and their downs are, are ups and downs to their parents and how they feel about themselves. And so I think it would be great if my kids feel happy and successful in work and in love, but I don't see that as my success. So when you look back when the kids uh, are 20 or 30 and you would ask yourself, did I do a good job as a parent? How would you measure that? 
Okay, so what if I flip this on you just to we're just going to get, you know, radical out of the box here yeah. and said, what if you didn't ask yourself that? Like, what if you didn't see your kid's life as your success or not your success? That's a great question. I guess the whole podcast started because I see it as my role to help them develop a, a certain set of traits and to become competent and happy when they grow up. I never thought about it. Is it actually my role? Uh, I guess I, I always thought about it as my role. Right, right. Well, no, I, I mean, of course, I agree that it is my job to try to be a good parent. Yet, I would also challenge myself to not get too bound up on having my success be tied to my, what I perceive as my children's success. Because not just because I need to have a sense of whether I feel like a good parent no matter what happens, but more from their end. So let me put it to you this way. I have clients who come in and tell me I could never tell my parents that I'm here. They would just be devastated if they thought I wasn't happy. And so I don't think that's what we want, right? That right. Right. kids feel like, well, I have to do great or my parents will be crushed. I mean, I tell my kids all the time if they thank me for something, you know, whatever, making hot chocolate or, and I say, oh, this is my most important job. So I agree with you. I mean, parenting is absolutely my most important job, yet I don't want my kids to feel like they are my success or my failure. Got it. I think in the last 20 years or so, parents have been more interested in being good parents. I mean, that may be a gross oversimplification, but I was a kid of the 70s and, you know, I was raised in front of the television and, you know, my parents were smoking and drinking and, you know, doing none of the things that we now know you're not supposed to do. Right. And we all came relatively okay. So, <laughs> so well, I'm not suggesting that. I'm, and I'm saying, you know, my kids are not raised in front of the TV and I'm definitely not sitting around smoking and drinking. So we're all more invested in parenting, I think, than people used to be. And so, and I think that's only to the better. I mean, my clients today versus 20 years ago, they like their parents. They want to hear their advice. They feel connected to them. They're They're not just like, I'm out of here, I'm moving cross country, and maybe I'll call you once a month. And I think that's really great. Yet, I do think that I hear more often from clients how difficult it is maybe to tell their parents something isn't going well, that their parents will feel that they've done something wrong versus seeing, hey, I mean, life isn't going to be perfect and my kids are going to struggle. It doesn't mean that I there was a gap in my teachings. It just means life's going to have its ups and downs. Okay. The second question is, uh, if you could choose the next guest on the show, who would that be? I don't know if it's directly relevant to your podcast, but a book I just love, love, and I recommend to all my young adult clients is So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson. Are you aware of that book? No. So it's a great book, fun, fun read about public shaming and kind of the Twitter takedowns and sort of the role of social media and how we can make a mistake 
sometimes a big one, sometimes a small one, and how the consequences can be enormous now, really largely because of social media has allowed public shaming not just to happen in the court square, but on a global level. And I love the book because it's a really fun read. But it also, I often suggest that clients read it because I think it does talk about resilience to a certain extent. It helps people learn that from the stories of others that things can go horribly wrong for somebody over something small they did or over something big and stupid that they did. And everybody can know about it and everybody can pile on about it, but life goes on. You find a way to just wake up another day and keep going. There's just something about the book I think is really special in that it kind of has that message of it has people confront their worst fears through the book. Okay, I'll buy it today. If you could rewind the clock and raise the same kids again, what would you do differently? I don't know. I think I'm not going to give you the answer that you would be the sort of answer you might be expecting per our conversation a minute or two ago. I mean, I guess one thing I would do differently is that I would have more of a long-range view of that, trying to not jump to conclusions about when my kids are having problems, that this is necessarily indicative of anything or that this is something that needs to be cause for panic or concern or that that they're not, you know, that isn't going to sort of change with development and experience. And I think maybe we all do that more with our first kids where, you know, everything we think, oh, no, what does yeah. this mean? And the second <laughs> one, you're like, oh, they're fine. I, I know it just means nothing now. So maybe I wish my poor, per, my poor firstborn had benefited from from that. But it's not jumping to conclusions about things that my kids do that I wish that they didn't or that I think they should know better or that cause problems. Seeing that is indicative of anything other than where they're at developmentally. And it doesn't mean I can't help them move along or, you know, grow or develop in that area, but it it doesn't necessarily mean anything fixed about them. I mean, that kind of goes back to the growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. So that, how did that translate into day-to-day when you look at how you're raising your second child versus the first one? you just more relaxed? Because that's something I definitely see about us. We have three. The third one is like, yeah, you can do what, like, who cares? <laughs> It'll be Yeah, fine. it's going to be fine. But the first, we were definitely stressed on everything. Right, because you think everything means something. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, a good example I mean, my kids have different personalities, but one of them had a difficult toddlerhood, right? And this caused me all sorts of pain and suffering and consternation and and worry. And I could have never, if you had asked me when that child was two or three, if they would be where they were at eight or nine or 10 or 11, I would have never said yes, you know, that... I could never have imagined how much better things were going to get or how much growth and development and change was on our side. And so I wish, of course, I'd been able to see into the future because I would have been less stressed and I probably would have been a better parent through all of that, knowing that I don't need to panic. This doesn't mean anything that toddlers can be difficult. There's another thing. It's I'm sure somebody said this, but I don't know who it was. I saw it on a 
on the wall of a colleague of mine's office, but it said something about when something goes wrong with your kids, to see it not as misbehavior, but as struggle. So I think most times kids who are are doing something, quote, wrong or bad, they're not trying to misbehave. They're showing you where they struggle. And to sort of to, to see that as, oh, these are areas to address or areas where my child needs help, not areas where my child needs punishment or necessarily even correction as much as this is where my child is struggling. So what would be an example? Let's say they hit someone at school? Or... Okay, sure. All right. So if that happens, we could all agree, you know, that's a no-no and we'll have all sorts of negative consequences. So we need to find another way to do what is it they were trying to do or what was happening there. So that child probably needs help managing embarrassment or confusion. You've kind of got to figure out, like, what was it that got that child upset? They were struggling to handle some kind of negative emotion, whether it was embarrassment or confusion or, or anger or whatever it was. And so they obviously need help finding ways to say what the problem is rather than show what the problem is. In older clients, I have clients college-age clients or 20-somethings who cut themselves. And that's a classic example of that's someone who's showing you where they're struggling instead of being able to talk about how they're struggling and find a better way to handle that. And so I think to see a behavior that you don't like is something that someone needs help with rather than as something that needs to be corrected or, or punished. That's also a great advice. I guess my last question, is there any other last advice that you would give to parents that are starting their parenthood journey? And you gave a lot today, but I wonder if there's any other advice that comes to mind before we finish. I'm the kind of person that I, I never, I never, I, I vowed to myself that when I was a parent of young children, I would never, ever say to anybody, it goes quick, enjoy it, <laughs> because those first years felt like, Eternity. A, an eternity. And it wasn't always enjoyable. Let's put it that way. And so I'm not the kind of person who does say that or ever will say. I promised I would never say that. And so if anything, I would say to expect that everything is mixed, that being a parent is going to be the best and the worst thing you ever did <laughs> and the most natural and the hardest thing you ever did. And you're going to feel the most meaning and then the most incompetent you've ever felt. I mean, there's just so much contradiction in parenting and to let that be okay, that that is the truth of it. And that if I think the same way we feel like our kids are doing something wrong if they struggle, you know, that if we if we do our jobs perfectly, our kids will never be unhappy. That is just not possible. It's a mixed experience. And I mean, of course, for me, for most people, far more good than bad. But to understand that you're not doing something wrong if you're finding it to be challenging sometimes and feel like you have no idea what you're doing, but it doesn't mean that you don't. Okay, so I guess to bring it full circle, so it's super normal to have challenges and to have ups and downs. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we can show 
whether we're talking about our 20-somethings or whether we're talking about kids with adversity or whether we're talking about being a parent, that there are always going to be ups and downs, that life is mixed, that problems to be solved, and that it helps if we try not to go it alone in those areas. Thanks. Thank you very much. This was great. My pleasure, Guy. It was great to meet you, and I enjoyed chatting. Same here. This was a rich conversation full of insights and takeaways, and here are a few that I found especially eye-opening. Number one, resilience is not a trait. It's an outcome. Just like success, it takes years, maybe even decades, to build it. And it's an amalgamation of hundreds, probably even thousands of life experiences and teachable moments. Number two, the key to developing resilience is having a problem-solving mindset and the ability to ask for help. So think about how you can role model it for your kids and how you can help your kids develop those important life skills. Number three, the five-year rule. Think ahead What are these life skills that the kids will need five years from now? And start working with them on developing those skills today. Number four, when your kids act out, don't see it as misbehavior. Instead, look at it as a way for them to communicate that they're struggling. Work with them to identify what this struggle is and help them to solve it. Lastly, I really liked the fact that Meg challenged my question about parental success. Meg brought up a great point that we should be very careful not to tie our success as parents to our kids' success, and especially careful not to make the kids feel like they have to be happy, otherwise we'll be crushed. To Meg's point, such a feeling can backfire as the kids might be afraid to come and tell us about their struggles and about their hardships, thinking that they are letting us down or making us sad. Definitely food for thought. If you want to hear my daughter's perspective on a trapeze story in Mexico, stick around after this short note. Thank you all for listening. For show notes, please visit RaisingToRise.com. Your support is greatly appreciated, and I'm looking forward to continuing the parenting journey together. Alma, shalom. Hello. Do you remember last year when we were in Mexico that you climbed the trapeze? Yes. What do you remember? Well, I remember I was very nervous. And when I got up there, I remember that they secured the harness. And then I held on to the bar and I swung and I felt like I was flying. And then I let go. And there was a net under me, so... Then I wasn't scared anymore. Okay, and you remember that you didn't want to go up? Yes. So why did you go up? Because I, th- I thought it would be a challenge. Okay, and what did you learn from that? That you can probably get over your fears if you just look that there's nothing really that's going to happen. Like with the trapeze, there was a harness attached to me, and so I couldn't exactly fall. Okay, great. Thank you.